Good morning, everyone. Woo, that was, uh, thank you, worship team. I love our worship here at, yeah, amen. I, I am not kidding. Man, I get, just feel like I've had church. I can go home now, uh, but uh, that's, that's what I need. I'm filled up, man. That is some awesome stuff, and we serve an awesome God. So I'm excited to be with you this morning. I am in a, I do have a message, and then we'll worship some more, but actually I'd like to think of the whole service as basically worship all the way through. We're going to worship in song, we're going to worship over the word, worship in prayer. So once a month we worship over the elements of communion, baptism, and the sacraments there, but it's all worship, man. It's all had this Godward orientation to it. So Hopefully, I'll keep that going here as we get in our message. We're in the middle of a summer sermon series, actually more like two-thirds of the way through or so, or maybe seven-ninths, actually, to be more specific, I think, because our nine fruit of the Spirit talked about in Galatians chapter 5, and this week, I'll be talking about the seventh one, which is faithfulness. So I'm excited to dive into that with you this morning, but before we do, I want to go ahead and just invite the ushers to come on forward. Uh, Thank you, ushers, and thank you to those of you who... Uh, regularly give if Hosanna is your church home. Uh, again, help support our mission and vision, which we totally believe in and love here at Hosanna. All right, well, uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there to Galatians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. The key passages will be on the screens here in a little bit. But the book of Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul, and uh, it was written to address some false teaching that had crept into this church here. And the false teaching was basically this. You know, the true gospel says... That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Jesus Christ alone. Okay, that's the true gospel. And some false teachers, some Judaizers as they were called, some, some Jewish uh, men were creeping into these churches and saying, no, 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 no. You're not justified and counted righteous before God purely by faith alone and grace alone. No, you also need to get circumcised, which is the sign of the old covenant, you know, the outward sign. You also need to obey the Jewish food laws. And they were, the Galatian church had started to believe this stuff. And Paul, he just starts off the whole letter, if you read in chapter 1, and he is serious. He's saying, no way, that is a false gospel. If you tried to add anything to what Jesus did and say that that is necessary for getting right with God, you've missed the whole point. It's a false gospel. And so he spends most of the letter just unpacking how basically the whole point of the law throughout the Old Testament time period was to show us we can't keep it. It's like a mirror that we hold up and we say, well, broken that one, broken that one, broken that one. What's my only hope? Grace. And, and God himself came down in the person of Jesus Christ. And he came and lived the life that we should have lived for us in our place as a human being. Died on the cross for all of our failures to keep the law. And then rose again victorious for us, and we get brought right with God completely by grace alone on the basis of what Jesus did. So that's the true gospel. So Paul's saying we're set free from the burden of the law. You don't have to try and keep the rules, as it were, to get into heaven. So he says we're free from that. But at the same time, he also wants to pull us away from another false idea that can creep into the church. And that is, it doesn't matter how you live. God doesn't care at all if you're living in sin and indulging the sinful nature. He says, that wouldn't be right either because what he came to set us free from is not just the burden of the law, but the power of sin as well. He wants to restore us and make us more like him. And that's what these fruit of the Spirit are. They're basically just characteristics of God. It's God coming into our lives and restoring us and making us more like him again. And that's a progressive process. So when we indulge the sinful nature, uh, Paul says, here's what happens. Verses Galatians 5, 19 to 21, he basically says, think of this as two bowls of fruit. This would be the rotten bowl. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, 
lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I said before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we don't want that. That's the, that's the bowl of fruit that our sinful nature just naturally produces. Our sinful nature is, wants essentially to be God and Lord over our own selves, right? And when you get a bunch of people who want that together, it's, it's kind of what the worldly, the things you see in the world a lot and the things that are celebrated in the world, things that are common in the world. So that's one bowl of fruit. But what the Holy Spirit wants to come and do and come into our lives is make us more like God again. And when that happens, uh, this is what Paul says happens, verse 22 and 23 in Galatians 5. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these kinds of things. So that's what God is in the business of doing. We got two bowls of fruit before us. And my hope, my prayer is that when people rub shoulders with us individually or us as a church or as we get out in the community as a church, that people are beginning to taste that fruit there, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all that yummy stuff there. That's what God intended life to be like. That's what he intended community to be like here. And that's what he's doing among us. I totally see that in us and I and, I, and whether it feels like you're making progress on that, if you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit is in you, that's the trajectory of your life. You are growing in those things. You will grow in those things. And one day in glory, you will fully represent those things. And that's an awesome hope that we have. Uh, so it's, it's happening and it's going to happen. So today we're going to look at faithfulness. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would just show you what does it look like for you to up your faithfulness game here? You know, what does it look like for you? Maybe there's a certain area of your life where you feel like you've been compromising. It's sort of like the spirit's going this way, and then you sort of diverge into that sinful nature direction, indulge that for a bit. Wherever that is, I want the spirit to put his finger on that graciously because of grace, because of the cross. Not to condemn you, but to help you get free of that. Because God wants to set us free from the burden of the law. It's not by your works that you get right with God and get into heaven. But it's also, he wants to set you free from the power of sin, which ruins your life and your relationships and it's demoralizing and you feel defeated that's not what he intends for you either he wants you to walk in the freedom that he purchased for you and it's all by the power of the holy spirit amen amen all right so what is faithfulness uh let's it's always helpful well often helpful to look at the greek text because the new testament was originally written in the koine greek language and so we're going to look at the greek word for this it's the word pistis which is just simply the word faith in fact it's not even faithfulness uh, but most commentators are all agreed that it should be translated as faithfulness into English because it's in the middle of this virtue list here of qualities. And so I think that's right. But at the heart of faithfulness is obviously faith as well. So it's not a huge difference there. But this idea of faithfulness. And so maybe we can get some help from some synonyms of what we mean by faithfulness. And if you look at that, basically got words like loyalty, devotion, reliability, commitment, trustworthiness keeping your word, right? These are words, fidelity. These are synonyms of faithfulness here, devotion, commitment. And usually it's over the long haul, right? It may not always be a perfect record, but the overall direction, the overall trajectory is one of faithfulness there, right? That's what it is. So it includes this idea of perseverance because there'll be times where maybe maybe you do compromise, maybe you do break faith, but you get back on that track. And so overall there's this what Eugene Peterson, 
author of uh, many great books, and he also wrote The Message, or he translated the Bible into that uh, paraphrase, and it's a good one. He wrote a book many years ago called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I just love that title. It's just a good phrase, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction there. That's basically what I, I think is a life of Christian faithfulness. So where do you show faithfulness? You show it in various realms of your life, right? Think of a faithful friend. What is a friend, a faithful friend like? They're devoted. They're committed. They're there for you, always there for you. They're reliable. You can count on them. They're trustworthy. When you tell them a secret, they're going to keep it. When you're in crisis, they're there for you. They show up, right? That's a faithful friend. And that quality in friendship points us, reflects what the nature and character of God is like. He's always there. He's reliable. You can count on him. You can trust on him. That is faithfulness there. I'll tell you about my friend Dan. I love Dan. I wish you could meet Dan. Hopefully someday you will. He's an awesome man of God. He's a, I love Dan. He's super intense, man. He's, he intimidates people because he's just so intense for Jesus, but he's, it's, it's genuine and sincere. I love this guy. And uh, many, I think it was about eight years ago, our family was going through a crisis. And I kid you not, I hadn't seen Dan in years. And the only reason I had a relationship with him is because I taught his children at a Christian Bible school years earlier, and we established this relationship well, I called Dan to ask for prayer when our family was going through this crisis, and he picked up the relationship just like that. Every day, I kid you not, it was probably seven out of seven every week where he would call me and just check in on me to see how he was doing. Sometimes he would just acknowledge, I don't necessarily have the answer. I don't know what to say right now because I don't know what I'm going to say that could possibly encourage you or comfort you, Aaron. But let's just pray right now. And he'd just say, and if you need to call me at any time, Aaron, you call in the middle of the night. If it's 3 a.m. morning, I don't care. I'll get together with you, whatever. I mean, that is a faithful, godly friend. I love Dan. And uh, hopefully you have a friend like that. But even if you don't, hopefully you can learn to be a friend like that to somebody. Man, what a blessing. What a gift. What a godlike quality. And I want to spend some time on this next one, but we, we really don't have time. But th- for those of you that like Lord of the Rings, either the movies or the book or both and, uh, Sam Wise, Gamgee. He's really the hero in that story, right? He's the one who walks with Frodo, this hobbit, needs to destroy the ring at Mordor. So it's this long, treacherous journey of getting to Mordor to destroy the ring. But really the hero of the book is neither Gandalf, this great wizard in it, nor Frodo even. I would say probably the real hero is Samwise Gamgee in that book. He is just with Frodo every step of the way, putting his own life in danger. And I love this line. It comes from the movie. Um, He says... I can't carry the ring for you because it was a mission that was given to Frodo, but I can carry you, and they go all the way through. And uh, I won't spoil it in case you haven't seen it or read it, but it ends on a happy note. I'll put it that way. Um, all right, so what a, what a, be that kind of a friend. That's faithfulness, man. Proverbs 18.24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but uh, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Again, if you don't have a friend like that, you can be a friend like that by the power of the Holy Spirit. The opposite is what? It's a fair weather friend. I mean, I've got girls in middle school and high school, and I hear about fair weather friends all the time. I mean, it just happens, right? In middle school and high school years, those are tough times. And we don't have to be like that. We don't have to just be friends with somebody when their life's going nice and it's not messy and it's not going to cost us anything, right? That's a fair weather friend. Boo hiss. We don't want to be that, right? 
All right, we can, so demonstrating faithfulness in friendship and in marriage. Think of what you say when you make a covenant before God and before your friends and family. You're saying, in sickness and in health, for rich or for poor, till death do us part. Right, I'm going to keep this promise to you. That's a really big deal, a vow and an oath, right? And, and of course, there are biblical exceptions for, for, for leaving a covenant relationship, but it's basically because the other partner did first through some action, right? But a covenant is a big deal in the Bible. And so faithfulness, devotion, commitment, monogamy. All right, you also see faithfulness with respect to a calling or a cause. Man, think about some of the great civil rights leaders who for years gave their whole life fighting and fighting and fighting for civil rights for African Americans. I think of William Wilberforce in the 17th, 18th and 19th century in England. He was a Christian and a member of parliament. And man, for 20 years, he fought for the abolition of the slave trade. 20 years, that first 20 years was just battle after battle after battle, and he lost many of them. But God put people in his life like John Newton, the great pastor who wrote Amazing Grace, you know, that wonderful hymn that we sing, to encourage this brother. And he stayed in there over 20 years, and finally there was the, the victory there. And then another 26 years to end slavery itself. I mean, 46 years of his life fighting these battles. That's faithfulness to a cause that God put on his heart there. Or think of a faithful pastor who's serving in, maybe it could be any pastor, it's just hard. Maybe it's a small rural area, it'll never be a place where it's just going to turn into some huge you know, thing, because there's not even that many people that live around him, but he just faithfully serves and loves his people, or she does. That's faithfulness to a calling in your life. But the most important area for faithfulness is the vertical relationship and our relationship with the Lord, right? We need to be faithful to him. We get to be faithful to him. When you say yes to Jesus, really what you're saying is, is not just yes, I want a ticket to heaven. You're saying yes to all of Jesus. He is a savior, he's a lord, he's a king, he's a friend, he's a husband, he's all those things, right? You're saying yes to all of him. And so really what you're doing is, is you're essentially saying, I surrender my rights. I'm giving myself to you, Jesus, and to you alone. I will not worship another god. I'm living for you. I'm going to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, right? That's what faithfulness to God looks like. I love the book of Romans where Paul unpacks the gospel for the first 11 chapters. And then in light of this amazing gospel, he says, so what's the only reasonable response to this kind of mercy and this kind of grace in our lives? And he says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord, holy and pleasing to him. Just to say, God, I'm yours. I'm all yours. That's what becoming a Christian is like. It's the only reasonable response to his lavish grace and love. But that is hard to maintain that kind of devotion and commitment over the long haul because you've got three enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world doesn't exactly help you keep your promises and devotion to God, right? Or even just to your spouse or help you be a good friend. The world's not helping you in that. Your flesh, that's your sinful nature, this, this old terminology for this, our old nature apart from God's saving grace in our lives, the nature that loves and craves sin, and then you've got an enemy. Christians believe we have spiritual enemies, right? And uh, our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, right? And so we've got this co conspiracy working against us to try and help us uh, break our commitments to the Lord and our devotion to him. I love the Apostle Paul at the end of his life, and I hope you want to say this too. In fact, I know you do. He says, he knows, he's sitting in a jail cell, he knows he's about to get beheaded, and he writes to Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, and he says, 
The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Love that. At the cost of his own life, right? A life of devotion and commitment. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. So how it's going to help you sustain that kind of devotion and commitment over the long haul? Well, let's talk about that. Um, There are three C's of true faithfulness here. I'm going to go over these quickly. Basically, I see it as you've got to have deep convictions about what is right. If you're going to stay in that hard relationship, stay a good friend, stay faithfully giving and tithing when the finances, when you've got all these extra things coming at you that are draining your finances, and you say, how are we ever going to keep giving? How are we going to be faithful to this cause or to this person? Faithful to God. When the persecution hits a Christian's life, and that happens to a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world, how are you going to stay devoted and committed? You've got to have some seriously deep convictions about what is right and about what's true and even about things that you can't see. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, it's a great book. It celebrates all these heroes of the faith. And the great thing about that, to be encouraged by it, is none of them are totally heroes. I mean, Abraham, he had his mess-ups. Jacob, he had a lot of mess-ups. And yet these people are being celebrated as heroes of faith, not because they never had a time of faithlessness, but because there is this overall trajectory of faith. And the book describes what faith is like this. It says it is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. A conviction of things that we can't see. That's true faithfulness. You've got to have that if you're going to stay faithful. Conviction about what is right, and you're not going to move from that. You've got to have courage under pressure to compromise here. The book, it's interesting, the book of Revelation was written to the persecuted church at the end of the first century. What's interesting to me is how often it talks about the cowardly and the unbelieving. And there's these warnings like, don't be like the cowardly. Don't break your faith commitment to Jesus Christ. Don't offer those sacrifices to the pagan emperors. No, you offer your devotion and commitment to Jesus Christ alone. He alone is worthy. And I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. These three Jewish men were in exile in the Babylon, and the king uh, creates this idol and he basically is demanding everybody to bow down and to worship it and these guys have the courage to say king nebuchadnezzar we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter if we're thrown into the blazing fire the god we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand but even if he doesn't we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There's some courage there, right? They're staying faithful to the true and the living God, the God of Israel. Love that. He is able to deliver us. He will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we ain't worshiping your gods. Love that. If you have that kind of devotion and commitment, conviction and courage. The third C of true faithfulness is that it's costly. You've got to be willing to bear the cost of true devotion, commitment, a life of faithfulness, because almost inevitably it will cost you at some point. I've been reading Psalms. I read Psalms every morning, basically. And uh, Psalm 15.4 stood out to me recently. It says, Who may ascend your holy hill? And it describes what a righteous character is like. And in this list of descriptions, it says this, verse 4, It's someone who keeps his oath even when it hurts and doesn't change their mind. 
See, it's hard, I mean, it's easy to keep your promises when it's to your advantage, when things are going well, when things are working out for you. But what about when the conditions change? What about when the agreement, the contract, the relationship changes? What, what about then? What about when it's not to your advantage? Do you try and get out? There's a place sometimes for that, don't get me wrong, but generally speaking, it's someone who is willing to keep their vows, keep their promises, even at cost to themselves. They don't try to avoid an unexpected, painful outcome. They keep their words, even if it means a loss of some kind. How are you going to do that? How am I going to do that? I mean, this is, this is crazy. This is not natural stuff. The natural stuff is uh, that first rotten bowl of fruit I read. That's what's natural. How are we going to show this kind of supernatural faithfulness? And the reality is, in one level, you can't. And you don't have to. It's not up to you. The Holy Spirit comes into you so that you can begin to live a supernatural life and do what is not natural to you. It's not a formula. It's not, okay, here's the right formula for becoming a faithful, loving, joyful, peaceful person. There's no formulas. So how do we do that? There's this interesting balance between God's role of growing us into more faithful people and our role. How do those two work together there? And um, what I want to do is give you a, a tool. I want to expand on a tool I I used last time if you happen to be here for that message on patience. But I'm going to expand on a tool, and I hope it will be practical and useful to you. And then I want to come back to two principles of Christian growth, and we're going to do that in uh, less than 10 minutes. So here we go. All right. Let's do this. Um, so here's a tool. It's called the Three Trees Diagram. It's a really helpful counseling tool. I hope you can, you can use it on any area of struggle in your life. I got this from a book called How People Change, which comes from a course called The Dynamics of Biblical Change. Wonderful, wonderful tool. And basically what it does, it says, okay, the sun, there are three trees. There's the thorny tree. That's what that is. I did my best. That's a fruitful tree. And that's the cross. And it says when situations come into our lives where there's pressure, there's stress, there's heat, there's a challenge, there's a trial of some kind. When that comes into your life, what happens? Sometimes we respond in a thorny way, a way that is not fruitful. It's more like that first bowl of fruit that I mentioned there. And so that's what this is here. I'm just going to circle a thorn, okay? But where is that coming from? Remember, we said last time we talked about going from the fruit, or in this case the thorn, to the root. This is coming from somewhere. And so this is where we're going to look at the person's heart. And I'm going to put a negative sign in there because what's going on in the person's heart is two things. There are lies that they're believing and there are lusts, desires that are idolatrous. It could even be for a good thing that's been turned into a demand and therefore it's like an idol of the heart. We're demanding it. And so it's like a a lust. And what we need to do is look at, okay, what am I believing and what am I overly desiring that's not what God wants for me? And so let's, let's just practice this. Let's say, let's say a stressful situation comes into your life. There's the heat. Are you going to compromise or are you going to stay faithful and devoted to God? That's the question. Well, let's say there's an area where you compromise. You generally struggle and you compromise. Where is that coming from? Ask yourself, what lies am I believing at that point? Maybe it's, I'm going to use, I'm going to get personal here. Uh, I didn't really want to do this, but I feel like I should. Uh, It's talking about, so overall, I've been 
tithing and giving throughout my whole Christian life. And over, throughout our whole marriage, 21 years of marriage, I was a Christian school teacher and in pastoral ministry. And basically, neither of them, you know, you don't go into it for the money, right? And so as a Christian school teacher, I think I started off at $15,000 a year, okay? And, um, but it was really cool because I, wanted, I thought we were living by faith and we wanted to also tithe. And so for years, we tithe. I even, that was really cool because we gave even up to 15% of our income off of that very low income. And it felt really cool in my early 20s, but then you start to have kids, and then you start to have to pay more health insurance, and you get, maybe get a mortgage even, and maybe the car breaks down. And there have been these, overall, there's a trajectory of tithing and faithfulness in my life, being faithful in that area. But there have been these gaps where I just said, you know, not this month. Uh, you know, that's, that, that car broke down, or this season of life is too tricky, man. I don't know how we're going to pay the bills. Let's just pull back. And so I have compromised in those areas. I've not been a good leader in my own home in that way. And that's been convicting because usually my wife is one say, hey, we need to start tithing. And I'm like, wait, you see the numbers, man? So that area of compromise. Well, if I ask myself, where is that coming from? What lies am I believing when I do that? I'm saying, God's not going to provide. I've got, it's up to me. I've got to take care of this. The numbers don't work. He can't provide in extra ways that I don't see. He can't expand our money in ways that we don't know. That's, what I, that's the lie that I'm believing, Right? And what's my lust? What's my desire at that point that's more than trusting God and giving? At that point, the lust is basically a desire for security, financial security. I want to feel like I'm in control. I want to feel like we're okay and that the numbers are going to work out. I'm going to take this into my own hands. That's what I'm desiring is that kind of financial security, which I think is going to come through not giving. And so that's a lie. And so what's the situation? So... The results would be basically a low-grade guilt, shame, and then I'm not even contributing and giving financially. And then I tell myself, well, you know, I'm, I'm teaching in a Christian school, teaching Bible and all that stuff. We're, I'm serving in other ways, and that's okay. But I'm really not learning how to trust God with my finances. And so how do I begin to change the heart? Because it's all about changing the heart. It's not just about behavioral change. How do we get at the heart? And this is where, between the cross and my heart, I'm going to draw, this is meant to be a river, and it's the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to put HS in there. But how does the Holy Spirit flow to change Davich's heart so that he trusts God? And out of a heart of trust comes financial tithing and faithfulness in that area, right? Well, it comes through repentance. It comes through looking at what does God's word say? My God will supply all your needs, Aaron, according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that or not? Do you believe that I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread? Do you believe these promises? Do you believe, test me in this? And see if I don't throw open the floodgates and bless your socks off. You know, that great passage from the book of Malachi. Right? Do I believe that? So I bring, that, so I bring my lies to the Bible. And I say, okay, here's what God's word says. And I repent. Repent is not this big traumatic thing. Oh, I'm so bad and I'm lashing myself. No, I just receive God's forgiveness afresh. I'm reminded of his amazing patience and faithfulness to me. And there's another river that flows here to come, right, through that whole transaction of repentance and faith and receiving his forgiveness afresh. And then my heart begins to change, right? And now there's a, it's a plus sign in my heart. There's a new heart. There's a heart of faith. Instead of lies, there's belief. God will supply all of your needs. There's um, a satisfaction and a rest in God, and I'm satisfied in him. I'm not looking for satisfaction in, sec- in my financial security. I'm, I'm looking to him for it. And out of that kind of heart comes a heart of faithfulness in this particular area of my life. 
right? And so I want that. And that results in a whole new set of circumstances. He ends up blessing my socks off financially or doing some really cool story where somebody else writes some random check or all those cool things that happen, you know, where you get to find these checks in the mail. I got to hear a cool story like that from a couple last week. They were tested just like this. And unlike me, they kept their promises. They kept their faith. And all of a sudden they get a random check in the mail for the exact amount that they needed. I love those kinds of stories there, right? That's a tool that you can use. There's eight parts to this. What's the situation? What was your response? What was going on in your heart at that time? The lies and the lusts? What resulted from it? Usually a broken relationship or whatever the situation is you're talking about. How do we get our heart to a new place here? How do we get from there to here? This transaction of repentance and faith, five and six. And then ideally you have this new response here, faithfulness now. So there's seven with a new set of results in your life here, or often a new set of results. It doesn't always work out that way. It depends what the situation is. But that's an eight-step little tool there, and I would love to expand on the, that with you sometime as well. Um, but that's, well, I commend the book, How People Change, because it basically just goes over that right there. You can use that. What area in your life are you compromising? The heat comes in, you get stressed, and maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's um, you name it. Whatever your thing is that you escape into, look at your response. What's going on in your heart? What has resulted because of it? How's it affecting your relationship with God or others? And how do you get your heart over here? That's the goal. And it's through that transaction of repentance and faith and looking at what God's word says. And you know, the real, here's the trick, right? The whole goal is to get from your heart from there to here. And that is hard. And sometimes it's as simple as, like I said, repentance and faith and looking at what God's word says. But so often what's so helpful as well is what we did for the first part of this whole service, worship. And so I'm going to close like this. Um, Two last points for general principles for Christian growth. That's a tool, a real practical tool I hope will be helpful to you. But there are other two practical principles for Christian growth. And it's one, you become like who you hang out with the most. Someone has said you become the average of the five people you're close, most closely hang out with. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But who do you hang out with? Do you hang out with faithful, devoted, totally sold out, committed believers in your life? Do you, you should have some of those relationships around you to spur you on to be that faithful, godly, devoted, Christian, husband, man of God. I'm speaking as a man, but woman of God, whatever, right? Uh, whatever your situation is, a teenager, wow, I love it when my daughter has a wonderful small group to the youth ministry. She's surrounded with other, a godly leader and other faithful girls who are all trying to live a faithful, devoted Christian life in high school, which is nearly impossible. But you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And praise God for our youth ministry. So you become who you hang out with the most. And the last principle is you become what you worship. That's true whether it's you're worshiping an idol or it's true whether you're worshiping the true and living God. And I want you to see Jesus Christ on the cross as we wrap up this message here. Think of Jesus on the cross, how faithful, how good he is for you. Look at him in the garden. He's, he's about to say, Father, take this cup from me, yet nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. You know what the cup is a metaphor from throughout the whole Old Testament? God's judgment, his wrath against sin, Right? And Jesus is about to drink it. What he's afraid of is not just physically being tortured and hanging from that cross, which is brutal enough to make you quake in your boots and want to say, take this cup from me. He, what he is fearing, what he is dreading, 
is being separated from his father in some way, shape, or form as he takes our sin upon himself at that cross right there. He's going to experience something he's never experienced and will never experience again, some kind of separation from God, what we call uh, the just abandoned on the cross. Essentially, he was experiencing hell at the cross, more or less, that separation from the father. That's what he was dreading. And you know what? He knew the cup was coming, and he drank it anyway because he loves you. He loves you that much. Right? Look at him on the cross. People are saying, come down from that cross if you're the son of God. He stayed for you. Look at him rising again for you on the third day. Look at him staying faithful to you when all your worst failures, and you know them probably more than anybody. If you're married, maybe your spouse knows them. But the ugliest parts of you that have ever come out, Jesus stays, and he stays gladly because he loves you. And he knew what he was getting into when he entered into a relationship with you. I love that. It's never like my sin surprises him. It's, like, it's not like he's like, oh, great. You know, I didn't know you were like that, Aaron. You know, no, he knows it all. And he entered into the covenant, and he stays. We sang it earlier. Your love never fails. It never runs out on me. I love that. Is that the God you know? Because if you're worshiping that kind of God, you're going to grow into that kind of faithfulness as well. That's going to start showing up in your life more and more and more in your relationship with your kids or your friends or back to God, your devotion back to him. But if you think he's some stingy, mean God who's like just waiting for you to screw up so he can abandon the relationship, you know what? You're never going to grow in faithfulness. So how do you see God? You become what you worship. So on the note of worship here, we're going to do that again in just a moment here. But would you pray with me? So, Father, what an amazing God you are. From before the creation of the world, you saw us, you set your affection upon us, you chose us. I don't understand how all that works out, but your word says it. I believe it. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, you came into the world gladly leaving all of your glory as the eternal son of God, stepping into the earth to come and humble yourself, become a man, and then humble yourself all the way to the point of death on a cross. Thank you for what you did for us, Jesus. Thank you so much that you've risen again. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit so that this life of growing in faithfulness is not left up to us. Thank you that as we struggle in various points in our lives, you remain faithful. Your love never fails. It never runs out on us. We can bank on it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, not even ourselves, because you are faithful. You are trustworthy. You alone are worthy of our total devotion and commitment. Please, God, wherever any, everybody in this room, wherever they happen to be compromising, wherever they just feel like their general devotion and commitment to you is, is weak, Would you woo them, draw them into a life of greater faithfulness because of your amazing love? Not out of condemnation, not out of guilt, but because they're so overwhelmed with how much you love them and how faithful and how good you are that they couldn't help but say, God, I'm calling up on that altar. I'm offering my whole self to you like a living sacrifice. I'm yours. I surrender my rights. Here I am, Jesus. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.